Chapter One of The Return of the Soul by Robert S. Hitchens. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Roger Moline. The Return of the Soul by Robert S. Hitchens. Chapter One. I have been here before, but when or how I cannot tell. Rosetti Tuesday night, November 3rd Theories? What is the good of theories? They are the scourges that lash our minds in modern days, lash them into confusion, perplexity, despair. I have never been troubled by them before. Why should I be troubled by them now? And the absurdity of Professor Black's is surely obvious. A child would laugh at it. Yes, a child. I have never been a diary writer. I have never been able to understand the amusement of sitting down late at night and scrawling minutely in some hidden book every paltry incident of one's paltry days. People say it is so interesting to read the entries years afterwards, to read, as a man, the menu that I ate through as a boy, the love story that I was actor in, the tragedy that I brought about, the debt that I have never paid. How could it profit me? To keep a diary has always seemed to me merely an addition to the ills of life. Yet now I have a hidden book, like the rest of the world, and I am scrawling in it today. Yes, but for a reason. I want to make things clear to myself, and I find, as others, that my mind works more easily with the assistance of the pen. The actual tracing of words on paper dispels the clouds that cluster round my thoughts. I shall recall events to set my mind at ease, to prove to myself how absurd a man who could believe in Professor Black would be. Little dry as dust, I used to call him. Dry? He is full of wild romance, rubbish that a schoolgirl would be ashamed to believe in. Yet he is abnormally clever. His record proves that. Still, clever men are the first to be led astray, they say. It is the searcher who follows the wandering light. What he says can't be true. When I have filled these pages and read what I have written dispassionately, as one of the outside public might read, I shall have done, once for all, with the ridiculous fancies that are beginning to make my life a burden. To put my thoughts in order will make a music. The evil spirit within me will sleep will die. I shall be cured. It must be so. It shall be so. To go back to the beginning. Ah, what a long time ago that seems. As a child I was cruel. Most boys are cruel, I think. My school companions were a merciless set, merciless to one another, to their masters when they had a chance, to animals, to birds. The desire to torture was in nearly all of them. They loved to bully, 
and if they bullied only mildly, it was from fear, not from love. They did not wish their boomerang to return and slay them. If a boy were deformed, they twitted him. If a master were kind, or gentle, or shy, they made his life as intolerable as they could. If an animal or a bird came into their power, they had no pity. I was like the rest. Indeed, I think that I was worse. Cruelty is horrible. I have enough imagination to do more than know that, to feel it. Some say that it is lack of imagination which makes men and women brutes. May it not be power of imagination? The interest of torturing is lessened, is almost lost, if we cannot be the tortured as well as the torturer. As a child I was cruel by nature, by instinct. I was a handsome, well-bred, gentlemanlike, gentle-looking little brute. My parents adored me, and I was good to them. They were so kind to me that I was almost fond of them. Why not? It seemed to me as politic to be fond of them as of anyone else. I did what I pleased, but I did not always let them know it, so I pleased them. The wise child will take care to foster the ignorance of its parents. My people were pretty well off, and I was their only child, but my chief chances of future pleasure in life were centered in my grandmother, my mother's mother. She was immensely rich, and she lived here. This room in which I am writing now was her favorite sitting room. On that hearth, before a log fire, such as is burning at this moment, used to sit that wonderful cat of hers, that horrible cat. Why did I ever play my childish cards to win this house, this place? Sometimes lately, very lately only, I have wondered, like a fool, perhaps. Yet would Professor Black say so? I remember, as a boy of sixteen, paying my last visit here to my grandmother. It bored me very much to come, but she was said to be near death, and death leaves great houses vacant for others to fill. So when my mother said that I had better come, and my father added that he thought my grandmother was fonder of me than of my other relations, I gave up all my boyish plans for the holidays with apparent willingness. Though almost a child, I was not short-sighted. I knew every boy had a future as well as a present. I gave up my plans and came here with a smile, but in my heart I hated my grandmother for having power and so bending me to relinquish pleasure for boredom. I hated her, and I came to her and kissed her, and saw her beautiful white Persian cat sitting before the fire in this room, and thought of the fellow who was my bosom friend, and with whom I longed to be, shooting, or fishing, or riding, and I looked at the cat again. I remember it began to purr when I went near to it, it sat quite still, with its blue eyes fixed upon the fire, but when I approached it I heard it purr complacently. I longed to kick it. The limitations of its ridiculous life satisfied it completely. 
it seemed to reproduce in an absurd, diminished way my grandmother in her white lace cap, with her white face and hands. She sat in her chair all day and looked at the fire. The cat sat on the hearthrug and did the same. The cat seemed to me the animal personification of the human being who kept me chained from all the sports and pleasures I had promised myself for the holidays. When I went near to the cat and heard it calmly purring at me, I longed to do it an injury. It seemed to me as if it understood what my grandmother did not, and was complacently triumphing at my voluntary imprisonment with age and laughing to itself at the pains men and boys will undergo for the sake of money. Brute! I did not love my grandmother, and she had money. I hated the cat utterly. It hadn't a soul. This beautiful house is not old. My grandfather built it himself. He had no love for the life of towns, I believe, but was passionately in touch with nature, and, when a young man, he set out on a strange tour through England. His object was to find a perfect view, and in front of that view he intended to build himself a habitation. For nearly a year, so I have been told, he wandered through Scotland and England, and at last he came to this place in Cumberland, to this village, to this very spot. Here his wandering ceased. Standing on the terrace, then uncultivated forest, that runs in front of these windows, he found at last what he desired. He bought the forest. He bought the windings of the river, the fields upon its banks, and on the extreme edge of the steep gorge through which it runs he built the lovely dwelling that today is mine. This place is no ordinary place. It is characteristic in the highest degree. The house is wonderfully situated, with the ground falling abruptly in front of it, the river forming almost a horseshoe around it. The woods are lovely. The garden, curiously, almost wildly laid out, is like no other garden I ever saw. And the house, though not old, is full of little surprises, curiously shaped rooms, remarkable staircases, quaint recesses. The place is a place to remember. The house is a house to fix itself in the memory. Nothing that had once lived here could ever come back and forget that it had been here. Not even an animal. Not even an animal. I wish I had never gone to that dinner party and met the professor. There was a horror coming upon me then. He has hastened its steps. He has put my fears into shape, my vague wondering into words. Why cannot men leave life alone? Why will they catch it by the throat and wring its secrets from it? To respect reserve is one of the first instincts of the gentleman, and life is full of reserve. It is getting very late. I thought I heard a step in the house just now. I wonder, I wonder if she is asleep. I wish I knew. 
Day after day passed by. My grandmother seemed to be failing, but almost imperceptibly. She evidently loved to have me near to her. Like most old dying people, in her mind she frantically clutched at life that could give to her nothing more and I believe she grew to regard me as the personification of all that was leaving her. My vitality warmed her. She extended her hands to my flaming hearth-fire. She seemed trying to live in my life, and at length became afraid to let me out of her sight. One day she said to me, in her quavering, ugly voice, old voices are so ugly, like hideous echoes, "'Ronald, I could never die while you were in the room. "'So long as you are with me, where I can touch you, I shall live.' "'And she put out her white, corrugated hand "'and fondled my warm boy's hand. "'How I longed to push her hand away "'and get out into the sunlight and the air "'and hear young voices, the voices of the morning, "'not of the twilight, and be away from wrinkled death, that seemed sitting on the doorstep of that house, huddled up like a beggar, waiting for the door to be opened. I was bored till I grew malignant. I confess it. And, feeling malignant, I began to long more and more passionately to vent myself on someone or something. I looked at the cat, which, as usual, was sitting before the fire. Animals have intuitions as keen as those of a woman, keener than those of a man. They inherit an instinct of fear of those who hate them from a long line of ancestors who have suffered at the hands of cruel men. They can tell by a look, by a motion, by the tone of a voice, whether to expect from anyone kindness or malignity. The cat had purred complacently on the first day of my arrival, and had hunched up her white, furry back towards my hand, and had smiled with her calm, light-blue eyes. Now, when I approached her, she seemed to gather herself together and to make herself small. She shrank from me. There was, as I fancied, a dawning comprehension, a dawning terror in her blue eyes. She always sat very close to my grandmother now, as if she sought protection, and she watched me as if she were watching for an intention which she apprehended to grow in my mind. And the intention came. For, as the days went on, and my grandmother still lived, I began to grow desperate. My holiday time was over now, but my parents wrote telling me to stay where I was, and not to think of returning to school. My grandmother had caused a letter to be sent to them, in which she said that she could not part from me, and added that my parents would never have cause to regret interrupting my education for a time. "'He will be paid in full for every moment he loses,' she wrote, referring to me. It seemed a strange taste in her to care so much for a boy, but she had never loved women, and I was handsome, and she liked handsome faces. The brutality in my nature was not written upon my features. I had smiling, frank brown eyes, 
a lithe young figure, a gay boy's voice. My movements were quick, and I have always been told that my gestures were never awkward, my demeanor was never unfinished, as is the case so often with lads at school. Outwardly I was attractive, and the old woman, who had married two husbands merely for their looks, delighted in feeling that she had the power to retain me by her side at an age when most boys avoid old people as if they were the pestilence. And then I pretended to love her, and obeyed all her insufferably tiresome behests. But I longed to wreak vengeance upon her all the same. My dearest friend, the fellow with whom I was to have spent my holidays, was leaving at the end of this term which I was missing. He wrote to me furious letters, urging me to come back, and reproaching me for my selfishness and lack of affection. Each time I received one I looked at the cat, and the cat shrank nearer to my grandmother's chair. It never purred now, and nothing would induce it to leave the room where she sat. One day the servant said to me, I believe the poor dumb thing knows my mistress can't last very much longer, sir. The way that cat looks up at her goes to my heart. Ah, them beasts understand things as well as we do, I believe. I think the cat understood quite well. It did watch my grandmother in a very strange way, gazing up into her face as if to mark the changing contours, the increasing lines, the down-droop of the features, that bespoke the gradual soft approach of death. It listened to the sound of her voice, and as, each day, the voice grew more vague, more weak and toneless, an anxiety that made me exult dawned and deepened in its blue eyes. Or so I thought. I had a great deal of morbid imagination at that age, and loved to weave a web of fancies, mostly horrible, around almost everything that entered into my life. It pleased me to believe that the cat understood each new intention that came into my mind, read me silently from its place near the fire, tracked my thoughts, and was terror-stricken as they concentrated themselves round a definite resolve which hardened and toughened day by day. It pleased me to believe, do I say? I did really believe, and do believe now, that the cat understood all, and grew haggard with fear as my grandmother failed visibly. For it knew what the end would mean for it. That first day of my arrival, when I saw my grandmother in her white cap, with her white face and hands, and the big white cat sitting near to her, I had thought there was a similarity between them. That similarity struck me more forcibly, grew upon me, as my time in the house grew longer, until the latter seemed almost a reproduction of the former, and after each letter from my friend my hate for the two increased. But my hate for my grandmother was impotent and would always be so. I could never repay her for the ennui, the furious, forced inactivity which made my life a burden, 
and spurred my bad passions while they lulled me in a terrible enforced repose i could repay her favorite the thing she had always cherished her feline confidant who lived in safety under the shadows of her protection i could wreak my fury on that when the protection was withdrawn as it must be at last it seemed to my brutal imaginative unfinished boy's mind that the murder of her pet must hurt and wound my grandmother even after she was dead i would make her suffer then when she was impotent to wreak a vengeance upon me i would kill the cat the creature knew my resolve the day i made it and had even i should say anticipated it as i sat day after day beside my grandmother's armchair in the dim room with the blinds drawn to shut out the summer sunlight and talked to her in a subdued and reverent voice agreeing with all the old banalities she uttered all the preposterous opinions she propounded all the commands she laid upon me i gazed beyond her at the cat and the creature was haggard with apprehension it knew as i knew that its day was coming sometimes i bent down and took it up in my lap to please my grandmother and praised its beauty and its gentleness to her and all the time i felt its warm furry body trembling with horror between my hands this pleased me and i pretended that i was never happy unless it was on my knees i kept it there for hours stroking it so tenderly smoothing its thick white coat which was always in the most perfect order talking to it caressing it and sometimes i took its head between my two hands turned its face to mine and stared into its large blue eyes then i could read all its agony all its torture of apprehension and in spite of my friend's letters and the dullness of my days i was almost happy the summer was deepening the glow of the roses flushed the garden ways the skies were clear above scawfell when the end at last drew near my grandmother's face was now scarcely recognizable the eyes were sunk deep in her head all expression seemed to fade gradually away her cheeks were no longer fine ivory white a dull sickening yellow pallor overspread them she seldom looked at me now but rested entombed in her great armchair her shrunken limbs seeming to tend downwards as if she were inclined to slide to the floor and die there her lips were thin and dry and moved perpetually in a silent chattering as if her mind were talking and her voice were already dead the tide of life was retreating from her body i could almost see it visibly ebb away the failing waves made no sound upon the shore death is uncanny like all silent things her maid wished her to stay entirely in bed but she would get up muttering that she was well and the doctor said it was useless to hinder her 
She had no specific disease. Only the years were taking their last toll of her. So she was placed in her chair each day by the fire, and sat there till evening, muttering with those dry lips. The stiff folds of her silken skirts formed an angle, and there the cat crouched hour after hour, a silent, white, waiting thing. And the waves ebbed and ebbed away, and I waited too. One afternoon, as I sat by my grandmother, the servant entered with a letter for me just arrived by the post. I took it up. It was from Willoughby, my school friend. He said the term was over, that he had left school, and his father had decided to send him out to America to start a business in New York, instead of entering him at Oxford, as he had hoped. He bade me good-bye, and said he supposed we should not meet again for years. "'But,' he added, "'no doubt you won't care a straw, so long as you get the confounded money you're after. You've taught me one of the lessons of life, young Ronald, never to believe in friendship.' As I read the letter, I set my teeth. All that was good in my nature centered round Willoughby. He was a really fine fellow. I honestly and truly loved him. His news gave me a bitter shock and turned my heart to iron and to fire. Perhaps I should never see him again. Even if I did, time would have changed him, seared him. My friend, in his wonderful youth, with the morning in his eyes, would be no more. I hated myself in that moment for having stayed. I hated still more her who had kept me. For the moment I was carried out of myself. I crushed the letter up in my burning hand. I turned fiercely round upon that yellow, enigmatic, dying figure in the great chair. All the fury locked within my heart for so long rose to the surface and drove self-interest away. I turned upon my grandmother with blazing eyes and trembling limbs. I opened my mouth to utter a torrent of reproachful words, when... What was it? What slight change had stolen into the wrinkled yellow face? I bent over her. The eyes gazed at me, but so horribly... She sat so low in her chair. She looked so fearful, so very strange. I put my fingers on her eyelids. I drew them down over the eyeballs. They did not open again. I felt her withered hands. They were ice. Then I knew, and I felt myself smiling. I leaned over the dead woman. There, on the far side of her, crouched the cat. Its white fur was all bristling. Its blue eyes were dilated. On its jaws there were flecks of foam. I leaned over the dead woman and took it in my arms. That was nearly twenty years ago, and yet tonight the memory of that moment and what followed it bring a fear to my heart which I must combat. 
I have read of men who lived for long spaces of time haunted by demons created by their imagination, and I have laughed at them and pitied them. Surely I am not going to join in their folly, in their madness, led to the gates of terror by my own fancies, half-confirmed, apparently, by the chance utterances of a conceited professor, a man of fads, although a man of science. That was twenty years ago. After tonight, let me forget it. After tonight, do I say? Hark, the birds are twittering in the dew outside. The pale early sunshafts strike over the moors. And I am tired. Tomorrow night I will finish this wrestle with my own folly. I will give the coup de grace to my imagination. But no more now. My brain is not calm, and I will not write in excitement. End of chapter 1 Recording by Roger Moline